there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. This second talk is entitled The Secret of Stability. Secret of Stability. In Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27, we read a very familiar passage. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. We probably all know people who have fallen with a great crash. Everything seems to fall apart, and they're like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. I thank God that he is the rock of my salvation, and I love that hymn, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then with him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I can give you the rest of the stanzas, but you know the, the hymn. And I'm so very grateful that as I look back over my life, I can see many times when I have crashed and fallen and failed the Lord, but time after time, he has been to me that rock which has never moved. And when my friend Van came from Africa to South America to visit me, when she had gotten kicked out by the Sudanese government, we had five months together in Ecuador before she went back to the States. And we just reveled in being able to tell each other the faithfulness of God during all, the, during all those 13 years, and we had not seen each other since college days. And I just remember her saying to me, Bet, my feet were on the rock, and the rock never moved. And both of us felt that our own rock had moved many times, but not the rock that is Christ. And God wants you and me to be stable, dependable kind of people, kind that can be counted on. And I thought you might profit by hearing some uh, about five different women, all of them named Catherine. I never really thought about the fact until just a few months ago that, that I had these five women in my life that were all mentors in one way or another. Uh, not that they would have all realized that that's what they were doing, but my mother was the first one. Her name was Catherine. And I tried to sort of crystallize what each one of these five women had taught me because I have been greatly blessed by spiritual mothers 
dozens of them, many of which would never have realized that they had been a spiritual mother to me at all. But my own mother, Catherine, was a lady. I have to say that my mother was feminine from the top of her head to her toes. And when she died, uh, in the providence of God, all six of us were able to be at the funeral, which was quite unusual because we've all been, five of, five of the six of us have been missionaries, so the fact that we could all be there was unexpected. And each of us gave a little two-minute talk about something that we had learned from our mother. And my sister's talk was mother, was a lady, and she taught us how to be a lady. She was a quiet woman. She never expected to do anything except take care of her children. Uh, one lady said to me, what did your mother do outside the home? And I said, nothing that I have any recollection. You mean she didn't teach a Sunday school class? And I said, no. Was she in civic business or anything like that? I said, no. And so this lady just rolled her eyes and gasped, and she said, well, that means she'd never had any life of her own, did she? And I said, if you had said that to my mother, she would not have had the foggiest idea what you were talking about, because her life was her six children. And I don't think she ever dreamed of wanting anything else, but she was always there. My oldest brother was the first one who spoke at the funeral, and that was what he said. Mother was always there. I could go on and on with many different things that I learned from my mother. But then there was Catherine Kuhlman. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember Catherine Kuhlman, but she used to be on the radio every day. And her opening line was always, I believe in miracles because I believe in God. And she said it like that every time, and I heard her speak a number of times, and she was an example, a visible example of stability. I have never met a more powerful woman. When she was in her mid-70s, I believe, just before she died, she was standing for four hours on that platform. If she wasn't speaking for four hours, there were different people giving testimonies, there was music, but there were no chairs whatsoever on the platform just Catherine standing there. And different people came up and did different things. But I never forgot that. And then one, another thing that she used to say during her talks was, how many of you know that's the truth? And when people would ask, do you believe, Catherine, in a second blessing? She said, I believe in a second blessing. I believe in a fifth blessing. I believe in a tenth blessing. It's just more of Jesus. Then there was Catherine Cumming, who was the house mother when I was a student at Wheaton College. A little, short, dumpy lady who came from, Albert, uh, from Augusta, Georgia. And she had come from a very wealthy family, the kind that had white columns in the front and servants in the back. And she was disinherited when she became a Christian, cut, cut right out of the entire legacy that she should have had. And she was a single lady, and I don't know what in the world she did before she came to Wheaton College and was just the house mother for 200 girls. But she had a very big influence in my life. Short little lady who had a very charming way of clasping her rather ample bosom. And she called me baby. You know, those Southerners, you Southerners. Um, 
you can make short words long. Make, you know, Betty is a fairly short name, but she called me Betty. And my long name, Elizabeth, I get called Lisbeth, two syllables. You know, does that make any sense? But that's what the, the Southerners do to it. But anyway, one day uh, I went in. I used to go in and pour out my troubles to her. And once in a while, she'd tell me a little bit of some of her tiny little troubles. And one day she said, Oh, baby, and she clasped her bosom this way. I believe that God sent me here to be a spiritual counselor. But here I am carrying mops and toilet paper across the campus. <laughs> now, knowing what her background was, the fact that she undoubtedly never carried mops and toilet paper in her life before she became a house mother at Wheaton College, that made a very deep impression on me because she was indeed a spiritual counselor and a great blessing to all of us girls in that dormitory. But her spiritual counseling was greatly enhanced by her willingness to take the place of a servant and to carry mops and toilet paper for Christ. Well, years later, she was in a retirement home in Florida, and my husband, my second husband, and I happened to be in Florida, and we had the opportunity to go there and visit her. And I reminded her that day of what she had said to me. And she clasped her then less than ample bosom, and she said, Oh, baby, did I really say that? <laughs> and I said, That is exactly what you said, and I never forgot it. And she said, Oh, Betty, just think of the mercy of God that he allowed me to carry mops and toilet paper for his glory. Lessons from three Catherines. Then there was Catherine Cunningham. I went to Bible school, Prairie Bible Institute in Alberta, Canada, and I was very lonely and very much like a fish out of water because I think I was the only student in the whole school that had a college education. Everybody else was there for Bible school, but I went just to take a one-year course from that wonderful Bible teacher, Mr. L. E. Maxwell. And I was feeling very homesick. My home was in New Jersey, and Alberta, Canada is a long way from there. One day, there was a knock on the door, and I opened the door to see a most radiant face, pink cheeks, a big smile, and white hair surrounding that lovely face. It was a lady named Catherine Cumming. She turned out to be the, not Catherine Cumming, Catherine Cunningham. She was the Dean of Women at Prairie Bible Institute. And she looked at me when I opened the door and she said, are you Betty Howard? And I said, yes. She said, oh, Betty dear, you don't know me. But I've been praying for you. And I just thought that perhaps someday you'd like to come down to my little apartment and we'd have a cup of tea. Well, she was Scottish, and so you can imagine that I certainly took her up on that invitation. Many a very bleak midwinter, I would make my way down to that tiny little basement apartment where she lived. Her husband was the manager of the uh, furnace system at Prairie Bible Institute, so they were just very humble people. And this tiny little basement apartment was so tiny that we had to sort of sit kneecap to kneecap while we drank our tea. But Catherine Cunningham became Mom Cunningham to me. She was like a spiritual mother. And I would often go, and she, and she would put the kettle on, and we would have a cup of tea and a Scottish scone. 
but she always opened the Bible. And I think that almost every day, every time I went there, she would open to Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye might abound in hope. And I'm sure that Mom Cunningham looked through me well enough to see that I needed a whole lot of hope. And she gave it to me. I, as I think I told you earlier, I came from a long line of worry warts and I was always worried about things. And she reminded me, may the God of, God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope. And then just shortly before I went to Ecuador, I met a woman named Catherine Morgan, who was a missionary in Colombia, South America, but she happened to be in New York, and I got to meet her. And she gave me all kinds of wonderful practical illustrations and, and rules about how to be a foreign missionary. And I'm very greatly indebted to Catherine Morgan. And when the five men were killed in 1956, Catherine was living in Colombia at that time, and she was listening to the radio, and she couldn't believe her ears as name after name was read over the radio, and she realized that she knew four out of those five men. And she immediately got into her old, beat-up, red pickup truck and drove all through the night down from Colombia into Ecuador to be with us five widows. And we did not, at that point, know yet whether we were widows or whether our husbands were merely missing. But I'll never forget Catherine's exuberance and kindness, and here she herself had lost her husband when her oldest child was five. She had four little girls, the oldest of whom was five, when her husband had, been, had died, actually was killed in a very strange way in Colombia. But she came down just to prop us up and hover over us and surround us with love and joy and peace and long-suffering and has been a real mentor to me ever since. She is 89 years old. She is still a missionary in Colombia, South America. And last time I talked to her, she had no intentions of coming back to stay in the States. But these are women who set for me an example of stability. They were women who knew that rock, which is Christ. And it was on that rock that they depended. Isaiah 50 verse 7 has been one of my life verses. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Do you have times when you just feel as though you desperately need the Lord's help? Well, take Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. And it is my nature to be confounded. And the Lord is saying, calm down. I will take care of you. I shall not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And that reminds me of yet another woman who had a great influence in my life. Her name didn't happen to be Catherine. Her name was Virginia Blakesley, and she was a missionary in Africa when I was probably 13 or 14 years old. I went to a Bible conference where she was one of the speakers each day of the week. And I never forgot, after she told some hair-raising stories of her experiences in Africa with very close shaves with death, how that verse 
fortified and stabilized and helped her. And again and again, when she was in very, very real, terrible danger to cannibals, I guess they were, I can still see her now leaning across that pulpit with the tears pouring down her face. She said, the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And it seems to me that she probably said that in every talk she gave. Maybe it was only once, but it was said with such intensity that I, was, I never forgot it. And as I look over an audience every once in a while, I think, I wonder if there's one person here who is actually going to hear something that I say and go home and do something about it. And I've often thought, if, doc, if Dr. Virginia Blakesley looked over her audience way back then, the last person she would have picked out as somebody who might potentially think of what she had said would have been that little 13 or 14-year-old skinny kid that was on the front row, who was I. She could never know the impact that that verse had. It has become one of my life verses. Another example of the secret of stability. Now, you note-takers are wondering, where in the world did this go? So number one was the rock. Number two, the secret of stability is a fixed determination to believe that God means exactly what he says. A fixed determination to believe that God means exactly what he says. Let's look at Matthew 16. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You know the rest of that story. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Probably just what you and I would have said, and I can picture Peter just grabbing Jesus by the arm and saying, no, don't go up there where they're going to kill you. This must never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men and how prone we are to have in our minds only the things of men. What might happen to me if I do so-and-so? What about so-and-so? What might happen tomorrow? We're so filled with fear. We're so determined to preserve our lives. And Jesus had set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And he knew that he must, and that word must occurs twice in this new international version, he must go to Jerusalem and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And you and I probably would have done exactly what Peter did. We would have felt so sorry for Jesus, and we would have tried to dissuade him. And he would not be dissuaded. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. I think you can imagine, especially you older women who are grandmothers, you can certainly imagine how my parents and Jim Elliott's parents felt about my decision to take their three-year-old granddaughter in to live with a tribe of Indians who had killed her father. 
How do you suppose they felt about that? Well, I thank God that both sets of parents were very godly people, and they knew that God was going to lead me and lead me in the right way. But I got some very concerned, very long letters from both sides, Jim's parents and my parents, just imploring me to make sure that I didn't do something just foolish off the top of my head, but that I really had God's leading in this. And so there was a sense in which the time came when I did have a fixed determination to believe that God meant what he said. God had not sent these two women out where I could meet them without his own purpose. And they had been with me for almost a year. And so now they were saying, we're going home. The palm fruit is ripe. It's time to go home. We told our people we would come back when the palm fruit was ripe. And we want you to go with us. And so it was a matter of taking one day at a time. But I confess that I lay, lay awake many, many nights worrying about whether or not God really did want me to do that. And just yesterday, I had the opportunity to talk with a young woman who had to make a very difficult decision. And she said, Elizabeth, I don't know how in the world I'm going to know. How can I really know? Well, there's so many verses in the scripture that make it perfectly clear that he is going to lead us. Psalm 23 says, he leadeth me in paths of righteousness, not for Elizabeth Elliot's namesake, but for his namesake. It's his, it's his name that is at stake, isn't it? And so I absolutely hang on to the promises of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now that is in the Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, there are, in the original language, there are five different negatives. We can't translate that into English. We can't have two negatives in one, in one sentence because they cancel each other out, don't they? Uh, you can't say, if you say, I ain't got nothing, that means that you do got something. <laughs> it doesn't work in English. But in Hebrew, it says, I will never, 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 never leave you. Five different negatives. And yet we still cower and tremble and think, oh, how will I ever know? And so all I could say to that girl yesterday was, if you are absolutely sure that you have put your trust in Christ, if you want to do his will, he's not going to make it impossible for you to do it, to find it. You know, the sheep, the sheep herder, the shepherd, is certainly not going to make it impossible for the sheep to find the green pastures and the still waters. The shepherd takes the responsibility, and he does that for you and me. I have no doubt that I'm talking to some this morning who are facing a very difficult decision. And you may be worried as I was, but we have a faithful shepherd, and God is certainly not going to make it impossible. Let me give you three very simple steps for discerning the will of God. And these have been crucial in my life for many, many years. The first one is very simple, very obvious. Tell God you'll do anything he says. And if you're not willing to do that, you can forget it. You're going to do, go and do your, your own thing anyway. But if you tell God you'll do anything he says, then that's a good start. And when I told one girl that, when she was 
college student and wondering what career God might be leading her to, I told her, well, just tell God you'll do anything he says. And she says, well, how can I say I'll do anything he says if I don't know what he's going to say? <laughs> I said, that's where faith comes in, isn't it? He knows a whole lot more what's good for you than you do. Number two, which is very obvious, you could have figured it out yourself, give up your right to yourself. And how do you do that? Now, that's not easy. But that is the first condition of discipleship. This is number two under these three principles. Tell God you do any, you'll do anything he says. Then start reading your Bible and praying. That's an obvious step, isn't it? If you're really serious about doing what God says, you have to be reading your Bible. And you have to be communicating with God in prayer. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a very good passage which describes exactly that. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. I only have this one body. God's not going to give me another one, not here on this earth. So I am to present this body, old, tall, female, Anglo-Saxon, aged. This is the body that I have to present to God. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is an act of spiritual worship. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will know that the will of God for you is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's all under the second heading of reading your Bible and praying and making that commitment to God. Then the third thing, which is very often overlooked, mostly always overlooked by young people who are so desperately determined that they have to know what career God wants them to have or whatever. I tell them, you're a student, are you? Yes. Well, I can tell you what the will of God is for you. And they look at me with their jaws dropped. You know, how can you tell me what God's will is for me? God's will for you is to study. Well, they don't want to hear that. It means don't plagiarize on your papers. Don't cut the class. Don't be disrespectful to the professor. And be nice to your roommate. What has that got to do with the will of God, with this huge decision I'm trying to make about my future career? It has everything to do with it. If you don't lay that kind of a foundation, yours is going to be sinking sand. That is the secret of stability. Do what God says. And Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, where he knew he was going to be killed. And he said to his disciples in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. A fixed determination. Now, number three is keep your promises. Are you the kind of person that easily makes promises, but easily forgets about them? My mother and father used to say that one of the most wicked things that parents can do for children, two children, is to make a promise and then not carry it out. And I hear such tragic stories in the letters that come to me from my radio program, all sorts of stories, but so many wives and mothers in just in tears 
because their husbands make promises to the children. I will take you out on Saturday and we will do so-and-so. And then a golf partner comes along and it's much more important to the man, to the father, than the children. Just little things like that. And my parents always said, if we make a promise to you, you can be absolutely sure that we will carry out that promise unless God in some way makes it impossible. So put that in your pipe and smoke it now. Think about it. Keep your promises, whether it's to little children who are devastated when a promise is broken, or to someone else. And that was another thing. It was a principle. If we had volunteered to help with the Halloween party for the youth group, then something else much more interesting came along. My parents would say, you are going to help the youth group for the Halloween party if you have to crawl on your stomach to get there. You made a commitment, period, case closed. The secret of stability. Keep the promises, no matter what happens. And some of you are in what you might delicately call difficult marriages. What does God have to say about difficult marriages? Well, he has a lot. You know, wives are to submit them to their husbands. And may I see the hands of those of you wives who find that the easiest thing in the world? Well, I'm sure that you've already seen some dynamics between Lars and me, and I would certainly not claim that it's the easiest thing in the world for me to submit to my husband, but I know that I'm supposed to. And I know that it brings peace instead of conflict when I do. But I have the most beautiful testimony here that was also something that came through my mail, my radio mail, and I just thought you'd like to hear about one transformed marriage. She says, I'd love to tell every miserable and complaining woman she can have joy and peace in the midst of an unchanged marriage. I was depressed, but God prescribed only his truth for me, not Prozac. I had hardened my heart to his truth. I left a message to a Christian counselor, but then God said, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And I just want to pause in here and say, is your first thought when you're in a big problem, is your first thought to go to a professional counselor? Let me urge you to, to ponder the fact that there has never been such a thing as a, as a professional counselor until this century. What in the world were Christians doing for all the thousands of years before that, when there was no such thing as psychiatry? Psychiatry is from this century, it didn't exist before. And as for professional counseling, there was no such thing. It was older people that counseled younger people. But anyway, I don't know if you realize that, it, it, that the word counsel and counselor appears 150 times, a little bit more, I think, in the Bible. And God calls himself the wonderful counselor. I would urge you, if you're tempted to go to a professional counselor, try first going to God. Maybe one hour on your knees before the foot of the cross might save you endless trouble and maybe a whole lot of money. Now please, ladies and gentlemen, don't go out of here and say Elizabeth Elliot is against all Christian counseling. 
That's not what I said. But I do think that it's very likely that God wants to counsel you all by himself. If you're willing to listen and willing to, to take whatever steps he may point out to you. So this woman said, God told me he would counsel me with his eye upon me. And Psalm, that's Psalm 30, 32.8 is the reference for that. That's exactly what that says. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This lady who writes said, I had told many women, God is enough. He would not let me run to man. I am a slow learner, an obstinate sheep. For three years, Jesus counseled me, led me down the Calvary road. Death is painful, dying to my own wants and wishes. He brought joy into my life. He changed me, not my husband. My torture verses were Luke 6, 27 to 47, and I haven't got time to read all those to you, but you can look those up. But those were her torture verses. And one of the verses in that passage is, don't resist an evil person. Choosing to live these verses felt like torture. Once I did the right thing, his peace swept in and my countenance was lifted and the slow process of choosing had begun. In acceptance lieth peace. She quotes from Amy Carmichael there. I yielded. I accepted what had been given and what had been not given. And every one of us to whom God has given a husband, we know that before the wedding, we thought this was the most wonderful person in the world, flawless, perfect. And something happens within the next 24 hours when you find out that this prize package that you got is really a surprise package. <laughs> and you gentlemen that are here would say the same about your wives. I mean, we all think we've got the treasure of the universe. And it turns out that there are one or two tiny things that we would like to change. So she says, she began to learn to accept what had been given and what had been not given. And you see, you're looking at a woman to whom God has given three very, very different husbands, no two alike. And God has tested me in each of those, far more with Lars Gren than with the first two because he's lasted 21 years with me. Peace and goodness came in, says this writer, but not as I had planned, even better. Do the next thing was the motto that I began to live by. And then she quotes from Margaret Jensen who wrote, a, wrote that charming little book called First We Have Coffee. And Margaret Jensen tells how her mother when Margaret, a teenager, came home crying her eyes out because of some boyfriend problem, Margaret's mother said to her, oh, the, the girl said to her mother, Margaret said to her mother, Mother, I just think I'm going to die. And her mother said, Iron while you die. <laughs> this admonition brought me out of my pity party, she says, and the Lord gave me his motto, move on. Mentally, all my hurts and woes were taken to the cross and left there. Never once did God scream at me to pull my bootstraps up. He compassionately allowed me to feel the human sting from inflicted blows that cause pain, anger, depression, etc. I moved on mentally instead of dwelling on the blow. And I don't know if she's talking about literal blows or figurative ones. There was no promise to fix my marriage. 
just because I'm obedient. I must be willing without assurance beforehand. And my desires were changed. Earth has nothing that I desire beside you, said the psalmist. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, 23. And then she ends it with, the great lesson is, you do not need to wait until he changes. I hope that there are some here who will be able to remember those principles. And for you singles now, have you actually accepted your condition as single? Lars and I do die a thousand deaths over the fact that there's so many gentlemen out there who don't seem to know how to be gentlemen and don't seem to have any idea how to make the one simple statement and ask the simple question. The one statement is, I love you. The question is, will you marry me? They don't seem to be able to pull themselves together enough to do that very much nowadays. And we receive lots of letters from single women asking us to pray that God will bring the right man along. And of course, we can pray that. But then we also have to remind them, maybe God wants you to be single. And would you be willing to do as Mary said? Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Amy Carmichael believed before she was 20 years old that God was going to call her to singleness. She had at least two, perhaps three proposals, but she was single all her life. She could never have been the mother to 700 little children and to have established that amazing work of the Donover Fellowship if she had been married. Now, I don't know what God's will is for you, but I know, I do know part of his will, which is contentment, acceptance, stability. Put your feet on the rock, believe that God has given you this day, and it's none of your business what he might do for you tomorrow. Just trust him. You won't be stressed out. I even hear little children saying, hey, mom, I'm getting stressed out. <laughs> Where did they ever hear that word? It didn't exist in my day. Everybody's stressed out, depressed. But you will make a difference in this world with the secret of stability. Be simple. One more little thing which I think is it's very practical and very, uh, very simple. It's just to unclutter your life. You know, they're just, we have too much stuff. One of my radio listeners sent me this little song that she wrote to the tune of Three Blind Mice. I won't sing it for you. But it says, too much stuff, too much stuff, more than enough, more than enough. It's out of the closets and filling our space. It's growing and spilling all over the place. We're tripping all over a terrible case of too much stuff. The piles are staring us in the face. They multiply at an alarming pace and soon will be buried without a trace in too much stuff. Now, it may be literal physical stuff that God is talking to you about. You do need to clean out those drawers and those closets and the back of the trunk of your car. You know, it does simplify your life. Some of you may think, what in the world has this got to do with anything spiritual? Jesus, I'm sure, led an ordered life. When he worked in that carpenter shop, learning to use the saw and the hammer and the adze and the chisel. 
surely he did it beautifully and perfectly. And the scripture says that everything is to be done decently and in order. And when I think of the legacy that our parents left with, for us, that is certainly one of the things high on the list. Our home was a place of decency and in order. There were no roller skates on the porch steps. There were no toys in the living room. The toys had to be in each child's individual room. Once in a while, if there was going to be a game that several of us were going to play together, we'd be given special permission to bring something into the living room. But everything had a place, and everything was supposed to be in its place. Secret of stability. You know what's expected. You know what's not expected. And do what he says. Ask yourself honestly, how much do I need? Are you the kind of woman that has the moral strength when you buy a new dress to get rid of an old one? Or do you just keep jamming it into the closet till you can hardly get it in or out? Think about it. I think about the fact that I really need very, very few things. The older I get, the fewer things I need. And so I'm trying to get rid of clutter so that my poor daughter isn't going to have to go into our house and do an enormously complicated job. And then I'm sure some of you are just waiting for me to say this. Do the next thing. I've said it many times on my radio program, but that is a principle that I learned from my mother. I learned it from the headmistress who was in charge of the boarding school that I went to when I was a teenager. And I have heard it many, many times since. Just do the next thing. And at times when I feel totally overwhelmed with more work than I think I can possibly do, the Lord whispers those simple words, do the next thing. May God give us stability for his glory. God bless you. Oh, okay, Laura suggests that I read the poem, Do the Next Thing, for some of you that might not, might not know it. I found this in my mother's little red notebook after she died. Don't tell about it, just read it. Don't tell about it, just read it, he says. <laughs> From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message for me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, as it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And all through the hours the quiet words ring like a low inspiration. Do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment let down from heaven, time, opportunity, guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all resultings. Do the next thing. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath 
are the everlasting arms.